हेलो एवरी वन वेलकम टू आर टर्न पॉडकास्ट सीरीज और ए टी पी एस एज यू लाइक टू कॉल इट एवरी वीक ऑन फ्राइडे वी फीचर आर्ट एंड डिजाइन प्रोफेशनल हु टेकस टू द जर्नी इन दिस फैसिनेटिक वर्ल्ड ऑफ आर्ट मेक श्योर यू फॉलोअर्स ऑन इंस्टाग्राम यूट्यूब एंड स्पॉटिफाई विद दैट लेट्स कंटिन्यू विद दिस शो एंड डाइव डीप इन टू द ओशन ऑफ आर्ट सर्विस डिजाइन which focuses on improving quality and interaction between service provider and its user is our main focus of today's podcast cliff grenier who is the head of service design at royal college of arts london which is one of the most prestigious college in past three decades he has worked with many great renowned brands such as cisco barclays samsung and many more even if you are not a designer this is the conversation for you which will enlighten you on the need of design from industry as well as in common man's perspective stick till the end as we talked about different elements of design from the specialist enjoy this conversation with one of the most experienced men in the industry cliff grenier for you on arton podcast series Hi Cliff it is a pl- absolute pleasure to have you on our show so let's how are you actually uh, this pandemic situation and uh, and how's post pandemic situation working out for you well hello path first of all thank you very much for inviting me to talk to you it's a real it's a real pleasure and um yes it's been uh, quite a quite a challenge over the last well 14 or 15 months here in the UK Um I'm actually delighted to say that uh myself and the students at the Royal College of Art have done extremely well and produced some amazing projects and carried on working. It's been tough on our mental health as much as anything and um we've just finished our first year with with students only a few of them have ever met each other. But we've managed to keep the spirit alive on through the screen. and um we're just about to open a fantastic degree show where i'm very very proud some of the projects are the best we've ever done so a terrific achievement so thank you for asking but we're doing okay and luckily we're slowly coming out here in the uk and we're hoping to enjoy a nice summer that's that's great that's great yeah so before starting the conversation could you introduce yourself yeah so i'm clive grinier uh i'm the head of service design at the Royal College of Art in in London in the United Kingdom and uh I've had I've uh, been doing this job for not yet 2 years it seems longer because of the pandemic but um but before that I had a career working in design consultancy and then in some quite large businesses started life as a product designer and here I am now running a service design course 150 students 2 years masters at the Royal College of Art and I absolutely love it <laughs> that's great that's great yeah so as you just mentioned that you have been in this field for a very long time and so before that i would like to ask you that it's it's actually been 3 decades for you you, you have been in this industry so how did it started like could you tell us about your childhood like how how you actually got into design oh gosh okay um you're right that is a long time ago um i uh i actually got into design by becoming aware as quite a young child that um people made decisions about the world around us and funny enough that came through from my grandmother's dress shop she had a dress shop uh where she sold really nice clothes in a little village in the south of England and uh, every few months my mother and her would go to London and they would come back with copies of Vogue magazine and many other magazines and say look uh this spring everything will be green or blue I thought that's very strange how do they know is there some sort of wizard in London who decides what the fashion and the colors are going to be and uh, it slowly dawned on me of course that that people make these decisions you know they 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 look at the world and they say these will be the clothes we will wear or these will be the products we design and as a young child i was intrigued by some of some of the toys i had um i loved um model motor racing cars and 
understanding how they made them and, and where the metal, how was the metal formed and how was the plastic formed? This intrigued me. I used to take things apart. And a lot of designers I know um, recognise that desire to understand actually how things are made. Uh, and the fact that we have, I suppose now we would call the word agency over that, we decide. And for me, design has always been about decisions, making decisions. So, yes, yeah, so it was that quite young age. But I lived in a time where nobody knew about design. It wasn't seen as a career. I think I had a vague idea I would be an engineer uh, because my father was. <laughs> and um, luckily, uh, when I was about 16, I went to a, a college uh, in the New Forest in, in England um, where there was a very young and very small uh, design and technology course. And that was a fantastic discovery to me that one could make, but also more importantly, design things. And there was a process of design. Things didn't just happen. You made decisions about materials and form um, and, and function. And that intrigued me. That was amazing. And I thrived at that. I loved maths and physics, but I wasn't so good at them. So um that allowed me and a, and a very good careers talk from somebody who said, I think you should be a product designer. Never heard of that. So very, very luckily, you know, that opened a door to me and I went to the local foundation art school and then managed to get a place at Central, what is now Central St. Martin's. It was Central School of Art and Design. Very fantastic history of um, uh, of of design and and art in London, one of the first design schools uh, and took industrial design engineering and that was my uh, then my cast was set I managed to get a job with Bill Mortgage's company and I became a real designer and that was an amazing moment <laughs> that's a lovely story I actually liked how you actually how you actually, your actual uh, grandmother had an inspiration on you on how how your design process did work uh, okay, great. So after actually uh, uh, getting out of uh, your uh, college degree, you did um, with you did had experience with many uh, big companies such as uh, Cisco, uh, Samsung, and many more. Uh, and as you just mentioned, uh, you started as an associate uh, in 1983, if I'm not wrong, with uh, uh, Bill Mortgage. So could you tell me about how your journey went around from starting as an first uh, as an design associate? Yes, that's right. With with um, Moggeridge Associates, as it was originally called, the London office of Bill Moggeridge, um, myself and two other uh, colleagues from uh, Central were taken on. And I owe Bill, who's sadly no longer with us, and his team, John Stoddard and Head Obese, who ran the London office, you know, huge debt of gratitude for taking myself and my and my colleagues. Um and it was such a breakthrough to get a job in a firm like that. We were especially excited because they had an office in California and Bill had set up a company called ID2 in San Francisco. And within a year or so, I was on a plane to uh, to California to work in that office. And that was just an incredible dream for a young person like I was then, naive and uh, and ambitious. <laughs> um, uh, I was it was a, an amazing education um, working at Mogridge, you know, you think you know something when you leave college, but you really learn when you start working. And I was my one of my first jobs was designing car radios for Ford. And I would fly to Detroit as a 21, 22 year old um, and, and work with engineers there on just a tiny part of the car, the car radio. But a really important part, actually, because uh, it said a lot about the engineering and the usability and it was a big lesson for me because it was a digital car radio, the first one. And uh, suddenly there were so many buttons and nobody knew where to lay them out. And it was a story that continued right the way through my life. How do we turn digital into something meaningful, easy to use and simple? So it started right on that first job. But I spent some time with uh, in San Francisco during my time with Mogridge, which was incredible. And that was uh, a historic period because... A number of things were happening. The personal computer was being invented. Apple were being invented. I bought the first Macintosh for the office uh, in San Francisco. Obviously, being in America was an amazing influence, such a positive vibe, uh, a positive approach to creativity. And um, and a, a really a really formative experience for me. And also 
a moment whilst I was there when Bill Mogridge realised that it wasn't just the product, it was the user interface into the product that was important. And of course, that has been incredibly important to all of us, the idea that we designed the interface. And it wasn't just the outside casing of the product that was the important thing. So, you know, I was in the room when that penny dropped and we realised that was important. So moving quickly on, um, I, I wanted to design uh, many different types of product. And so after about five years, I left, um, spent a short amount of time with a really interesting science um, agency, Cambridge Consultants in Cambridge, before starting my own company, Tangerine, just before I was 30. It was kind of a mark. I had to do that. And um, and that was hugely exciting, developing a product design business. And very soon after we had started that with my fellow uh, Martin Derbyshire, who had also gone to IDO and Bill Mogridge with me when we left Central, um, Martin and I set up the company and then were joined by Somebody I had met briefly, a very young design student then, Johnny Ive, who was uh, two or three years behind us. And, um, and Johnny was just incredible, as you, as you can imagine. And for a few years, we developed Tangerine with Johnny, including working with Apple. Um, I'm quite sure they came because of Johnny, not us. But, um, but that was a tremendous time. And then, of course, you know, Johnny one day came back to London and told us that they'd offered him a job and the rest is history. So from then onwards, I think we all took slightly different routes. Um, I went back to California with IDEO and opened up the Samsung design office there with IDEO. Very, very interesting period of collaboration between a big company and a consultancy um, before coming back to London and joining Samsung and setting up their European design office. Um, I then uh, spent some time um, with other agencies such as Fitch, uh, which was really interesting, very, very different design culture, and then moved into one of their clients, McLaren, the Formula One racing team, developed products, still very much a product designer, before really jumping then um, into what I love doing, talking about design. I spent two or three years, three years, with the Design Council in London, talking to design, to politicians and big businesses and small businesses, helping them understand the importance of design um, before then jumping into Orange, a mobile phone company owned by France Telecom, lived a bit in Paris. That was an amazing opportunity to develop customer experience, to design the whole experience. And that really was, for me, the beginning of service design, which um, I then took into Cisco, as you rightly say. I've always gone to places where design wasn't particularly invited. I wanted to take design to places where it wasn't expected to be. But Cisco was a fabulous opportunity to work with cities, with retail companies, with financial services, with CEOs and C-suite um, leaders to help them understand the power of technology and also how to design that technology. That's been a massive theme to me through my career. And uh, at the end of a, a wonderful time at Cisco, I joined one of their clients, Barclays, and built up service design properly at Barclays, um, which was uh, an incredibly fascinating time. Tough to get design into a bank, but we had some really great successes along the way. Uh, and it was after that, I spent a little bit of time with my own business, which is still running, before I, before I came to the Royal College of Art, as I say, um, not even two years ago yet, just over a year and a half ago, uh, to actually hand over all that knowledge and wisdom that I hope I've amassed and work with our amazing tutors and visiting lecturers to teach the next generation of service designers. Yeah, true. Actually, I would say that I'm envious of you right now. As a designer, this is absolutely the best uh, opportunities uh, you could have uh, got consequently. Yeah. So as you actually said uh, at the start, uh, when you actually go from being a te uh, t into teaching in a college and getting out of an industry, you start learning actually. But before that, yeah, but before that is when you actually uh, get your principles right. Uh, the college is basically for uh, you to t uh, tell about the principles and how actually the design works. So uh, my next question to you is, uh, what actually made you inclined towards teaching? And now, as you said that you are in a prestigious college uh, teaching as an uh, head of service design. So what actually uh, did 
uh, inspired you to uh, get into teaching again? It's a great question, actually. And I haven't been asked that before. Uh, so thank you. But actually, um, you're right that when you teach, you start to learn. You're absolutely right. And funny enough, it was Martin Derbyshire and myself when we started Tangerine, um, which was a product design company, we both um, started lecturing, part-time lecturing at Central St. Martin's, Central School of Art and Design at the same time, partly because we were probably a bit nervous we wouldn't get enough work through the business. But um, but we realised exactly what, what you say, that how, how helpful that was in, um, in our own understanding of what design is and helping us communicate that, not just to students, but to our clients as well as our future clients. So we really got a lot out of that. And that kept me involved with education right the way through. By the way, some of the people we were teaching at Central at that time have gone on to be very famous. People like Sam Hecht, the product designer, and, and Ollie King, the founder of Engine, one of the first service design companies. So we were actually, actually very proud of the fact we were able to uh, impart a small amount of wisdom into their journeys as well. Um, but uh, over the years, I'd uh, taken on a number of uh, examiner roles. I was uh, lucky enough to be invited to be an external examiner on a few courses around the UK. Um, and probably the most important was with Glasgow School of Art. So I'm actually a visiting professor at Glasgow School of Art and spent six years um, examining their students. And again, some famous service designers such as Sarah Drummond from Snook was around at that time. She remembers me turning up. Um, so being close to education was great. Um, and then about four years ago, uh, actually, even before that, uh, I went to the very first student introduction Petra Kucha presentation for the service design course at the RCA when it started uh, nine years ago. It's only been going nine years. It's incredible. I think we celebrate the 10th year next year. And um, there I saw this amazing combination of people who were going to do this new thing called service design that was still quite new. We were still wondering what it was. Um, and I followed the course closely. And Nick DeLeon, who was the pioneering hero, founder of the course at the Royal College of Art. Uh, and about four years ago, when I was in Barclays, I was trying to engender into Barclays a deeper understanding that design was relevant to them. And it wasn't just a, a prettifying of a website. It wasn't a decorating thing. It was strategic. And they needed design because they had problems in banking that I knew design could help with. So Nick uh, very kindly allowed us, allowed me to take the management of Barclays to the Royal College of Art. And we met some students who gave fantastic presentations. And Nick gave an absolutely inspirational presentation about the power of design in big business. He was really fantastic at that. And after that event, he said, would I like to be a visiting lecturer? And I was very lucky. Barclays said I could spend a half a day or a day a week teaching at uh, at Royal College of Art. So that was the beginning of getting involved, deeply involved with the course. Um, and I realised how much I loved it, how much I loved working with the students. I was fascinated by their projects. They were so visionary. Their reach and their impact was amazing. And therefore, when Nick decided to um, stop running the course and take another role uh, at Royal College of Art, he looks after all the executive education and all the knowledge transfer there was a gap there and I applied and uh, I was amazed and delighted when they said, come, come and run this course. And I have to say, it's been, it feels for me, the thing I was born to do. Um, it's a huge challenge, 150 students, um, but they're all absolutely amazing. And the projects they do and the way we've been able to focus them, even during this pandemic. And the graduation show actually starts this Thursday and Friday and events next week. And I'm incredibly proud of what they've done. Um, these are the best projects we've ever had come off the course. So I think myself and my staff can feel both relieved and pleased and proud at how we've managed to keep the show on the road. We are somewhat exhausted as well, of course, but it's it's the most satisfying thing you can do um, uh, to see, to help, to empower, to enable students to get to the best of their ability and go out there and change the world because service design is a world changing Thing. It transforms the world. And I know that the students will go out into the world and do that during their careers. So I'm unbelievably excited about what we do and what the students will do when they graduate.
I'm sure you must be proud. Uh, as a teacher, uh, the graduation day can be said to be the proudest moment uh, for a teacher and a student as well. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. <laughs> yeah, true. Yep. So before actually uh, getting ahead, I would like to ask you: Could you uh, tell me more about service design? Like, how is it different from communication design, visual design, and product design, uh, which which are uh, nearly associated with them? That's a great question again because. Um, it's not something people are particularly familiar with. Uh, and it is, as I say, quite new. Having said that, it's, it's been going for about 20 years. Uh, the, the consultancy LiveWork in the UK celebrated their 20th anniversary this year. And I always see that as one of the landmarks where designers who were originally product designers, for example, started to design services. And as I say, the course is only nine years old itself. But the definition, the answer to your question of service design is, I think, um, is to understand that there are three components to service design. First of all, it is design. It is the methods and principles of design, the same I would use to design a product. It would be to understand the problem you're solving, to research that problem, and then to use your creativity to imagine a new solution. You can imagine if you're designing a product, you want to make it better. You want to uh, form something that's more comfortable and better looking than anything else on the market. If you're a communication designer, you want to communicate better or user experience designer. We use all those principles, but we don't apply it to a product. We don't apply it to a thing. We apply it to the set of experiences that create a service. So we talk a lot about the customer journey in service design, about what do people actually do? So they have to find out about something. They have to know that something exists because they have a need and it will solve it. They have to work out how to find it, to engage, to buy it, and then they have to use it. And then they have to use it more, we hope, if your business or your organization is impactful. And eventually you have the sum of all those parts, the service experience. Is it a good experience? Does it change the world in the way you intend? So we are designing a whole set of what we call touch points. And that means that um, as well as using design methodology, we are designing systems, we are changing the systems. And systems is a word that covers, you know, how do you train somebody to be more polite in the in the retail store, to understand the brand, perhaps? How do you train or how do you create a marketing program that links it all together, helps people understand the, the the power of the product and the service. How do you how do you manage the data so that we can help people make better decisions? How do we design the product or the user interface? You can see that it's a complicated world when you get into a system world, where design usually designed one thing like the product or the screen. We stand back and see the whole experience and we orchestrate it together. And the final aspect of this that is the essence of so much design thinking is that we're very user-centered, we're human-centered. And that can mean the individual, it can mean community, can mean society. So it's a long answer because it's complicated, but it's human-centered, it's design methods, and it works with systems to change systems to give a better total experience. And the reason we do it is because lots of services are really broken. You can have one bit that's good and then you find out that the onboarding is terrible, you know, and, and, and the customer service is bad. And if any parts are broken, then the whole thing is poor in, in a customer's point of view or the organization isn't so impactful or effective. So it's really important in this modern world. And we see lots of examples of where things don't work well enough because they haven't been designed. They're more of an accident. <laughs> and I do think that design is about the decisions people make. And a lot of people make decisions without understanding the impact they will have on the end user or even their own organization. So, you know, in this country, we have uh, because of COVID, we had a track and trace system that was going to be the best in the world where it completely failed because it didn't consider the human. It didn't consider the people they were trying to approach. It didn't consider the people who were going to ring up and try and contact people who may have, um, you know, sadly contracted COVID and tell them what they had to do. They didn't understand the human element of it. And so it absolutely failed. <laughs> and you can't keep throwing technology at these problems without 
understanding the human aspect of how this service will be delivered. So I think using these design methods and a human-centered approach and an understanding of the systems is, is so important for the world right now, especially as we come out of pandemic. But as you rightly say, you know, not that many people know about us yet, but we're growing and people are realizing because of the mistakes of pandemic that what I'm talking about is really important. Yeah, it's absolutely true. I would say that human should be the center of the product, not the product itself. Because human is going to tell, is this product useful and can actually be accessible to that product. And I'm sure that this field is going to boom a lot in the future. Absolutely, absolutely. It's a great opportunity post-pandemic to actually start making the right decisions <laughs> instead of just hoping technology will solve everything. Technology is fabulous, but we need the human element bolted in with it. So my next question to is uh, to you is that how has this uh, industry evolved? You have seen this industry for three decades. Uh, so how has this industry evolved and what changes did you see over the uh, period of time? Oh, goodness. So um, over, over three decades, I would say um, the biggest change is that people now embrace design so much more. It was a battle in, in the early days. It was a battle to find clients who got design. And if you had a client, you stuck with them very closely. Um, one really had to learn how to be an evangelist and help people, you know, whether it was an engineer or the head of a company or a manager in a company, to understand that design was more important and that it wasn't the thing you did at the end of the process. So I realized very early on that the briefs I was getting as a young designer working in Moggridge and other places, so many decisions had already been made that it left me with very little freedom. Funny enough, as a product designer, it, so many decisions um, can limit or empower your creativity. You know, when you're dealing with different manufacturing processes, um, the decision of a manufacturing process depends on how many products you're going to sell. Are you going to sell a million or 10? <laughs> and, and that gives you a choice, of, an economic choice of can you afford to tool up for a new product or are we just machining a block of metal because there's only 10 of them? And that, that massively changes the language of design, actually, the form, if you like, that you can use, the cost, the value to the customer. So when you're a product designer, I think you are in a very interesting position that you suddenly are exposed to a lot of different reasons why decisions are made. But if those decisions um, are not connected to uh, the design process, then you can be very limited. And you're not, uh, you don't have the chance really to be as successful as you could be. So I realized design was a much more strategic discussion. And I tried to bring design up that leadership level and make people realize that if they wanted a product to be really successful, we had to talk much earlier and understand those economic and manufacturing and material and process decisions. So that has begun to happen over time. But you know, the big change has that during 30 years, People have really got design, certainly the people who made products and increasingly the people who design services, mostly because of a failure. They fail so many times. And in the end, in the end, they realize designers actually can help them. And we've shown over time the impact of good design. And of course, the ultimate example of that is my good friend, Johnny, Johnny Ive, you know, who, who because his boss, Steve Jobs, completely understood the power of design and was prepared to take the risks that Apple took when Johnny and Steve created the iMac, the iPod. That is now the world's most successful company, right? <laughs> they didn't intend it to be, but any business person can see that and understand that that has happened and that has happened by design and the decisions that were made. So that is a fantastic change for me. The second change is the development of this methodology. 16 years ago, the Design Council, after I left, created the Double Diamonds that helped explain the importance of research and problem definition before you design. That's made a mass, had a massive impact on people. And the whole world of user experience, the digital world that we now inhabit, you know, that's very different from the physical product design world. And yet, as I was saying, all the methodologies, all the behaviors of a designer have transferred brilliantly into the digital world. And we are working with fantastic technology, whether it's digital banking or science and genomics in healthcare, 
design is there. It is working with those people and making sure that the overall experience for people and the impact, whether it's a big business or a charity, um, you know, actually is able to be more successful by design. And that's a that's a powerful message that that is being heard right across the world now. And that's very exciting. That's really great. Yeah. So my next question to you is, uh, how would you define a good designer and a bad designer? And what qualities do you see in them as uh, as we are going into the hybrid era? And yeah, there are new technologies evolving over the period of time, which could, uh, couldn't have been uh, three decades ago. The uh, technology uh, involvement was much lesser. Right now, it's evolving de- uh, daily on daily basis. So how would you define that? So a good designer and a bad designer, that's a tricky one. Um, but I think I, a good designer is able to work and collaborate with people. We talk about, we talk about three really important behaviours, actually, of designers. Designers can know all the tools. They can understand how to do an empathy map. They can do a blueprint, whatever it is. But what makes a great designer is curiosity, really curious about why people are doing things, what are they doing, going and doing that research before you accept the brief. And that leads to the second behaviour we think is very important, the courage to challenge the brief, to say, we're going to go and find out what the real experience is of this product, of this interface, of this service We're then going to come back and we're going to be honest with each other. We're going to be courageous and say, this is the real problem people have. And then we're going to collaborate together. Um, We're going to lead that collaboration and have a very clear vision of what a better solution is and take everybody around us, the engineers, the coders, the customer service people on that vision. So we talk a lot about leadership in in service design especially, and it doesn't mean that you're the chief executive, it doesn't mean that you're the boss or the manager. What it means is that within that collaborative group, you're able to facilitate the conversation and lead that conversation to the best possible outcome for your user, because that is the best possible outcome for your business or your organisation. Of course, it's always a balance. A good designer understands the balance between, yes, making something desirable and attractive and easy to use, but there is a business viability there and there is a technology feasibility there. And those three have to be in balance. We talk a lot about that on the course. How do we make sure that the business can sustain? How do we make sure that technology can be delivered appropriately and successfully and that the technology is there? But finally, how do we really make it desirable, easy to use, adoptable, remove all those barriers so that the perfect triangle is formed and we have a brilliant service designer. I think great designers understand that. The final thing I'd say about a great designer, especially in service design, is that they're able to storytell. They can tell the story of the power of the product that they're working on, the service that they're working on. They can um, communicate that to a CEO. And it's tough on some designers. They have to learn how to communicate. They have to learn how to boil it down into a minute and a half presentation when you've done months of work. You want to show everything you've done. We have to communicate to other people in a way that they understand. So design is facilitating, it's communicating, it's storytelling, it's collaborative. Um, uh, you know, we are, we are performing a role in, in helping the world to be more effective. That's not quite the same as running, as walking in and saying, hey, I'm a great designer. That wouldn't work. <laughs> so it's a quite a different type of design, but the power, the payback, is that you see the world shift and transform over time. Um, and that's that's hugely satisfying to see that happen after all the hard work. <laughs> that's great. If I could boil uh, your statement down into one statement, I could say that uh, the, a good designer is a one who designs for himself and, and is a best product. Uh, but a great designer is a person who can actually take every person along uh, with them and also touch a uh, human heart. That's where actually you would see uh, that, yeah, it's a great design. I think that's a nice, a nice way of putting it. There's always a bit of you in the design. Of course there is. Um, uh, and, but you're doing it for someone else. That's the difference between design and art, I think. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, on that point, I would like to ask you, how would you actually uh, define industry needs? And where do you see that a design is needed? Uh, like, uh, yeah, as you mentioned, uh, design should also be uh, present in, in the decision-making uh, policies. So how do you uh, define a role of a designer? And how, what does a designer bring to the table when he uh, gets into the industry? That's one of the great challenges. Um, you know, explaining to people the role of a designer. Um, and design is, is an occupation that has, people have a lot of perceptions and perhaps even prejudice about it because they think it's purely visual. I think anyone listening to this, watching this will realize that I'm not talking about only visual. I think the experience, the beauty of design is incredibly important, um, but, but we're seeing the beauty of the whole experience. How do we design every part of that sensorial experience? And how do we ensure the system is there? And how do we ensure it satisfies real user needs? Um, so I think um, the first thing I'd say about the role of design is that, again, it is very collaborative. But we need to be better, actually, than we are at explaining the value of design to people to make them understand that they need to have us on their project. This isn't the model of design where a famous designer comes in and sprinkles some magic on whatever it is you've got and bingo, it suddenly sells more or looks more beautiful. This is hard work design. <laughs> this is showing that the methods and principles we have can make what you're creating more impactful, more successful. And that is bound to take time. The, the way I've always done it is to never boast about it. I've gone into areas where there are really difficult problems that haven't been solved. And by persuading people to try out, and because the project is so collaborative and listens to people, people usually... Um, embrace design uh, quite readily and enjoy being part of the process because we are bringing them into the process. And at the end of a short period, the realisation that we are doing something different and it's going to be more impactful, and because another very, very important part of design is our ability to prototype and experiment before we build, we can show, we can get the feedback from people and show a positive future, a positive result will come quite quickly. And that encourages people and they trust you. It's all about trust. Of course it is. And the value of design. So building relationships, helping people understand the value you bring, making them look good because they're working with you. This is a much more complex diplomatic relationship. Um, and that's the one every designer has to go on. We are still in the world where service designers especially have to earn their right to be there. And they have to persuade people who haven't worked with the service design before, haven't understood these processes, haven't been included. And they're always people who are suspicious and cynical. And so designers need to have a certain resilience and a certain ability to overcome those barriers because there are always those barriers. Maybe there'll be a wonderful time in the future where everybody understands and service design will be completely integrated into every, every meeting, which I think I would love to see. Um, but in the meantime, we're still in a transition period where we have to we have to explain the role of design, but we're very much a bringing together of people. But I think probably the most important role is that we represent the person we are designing for and we keep reminding people who we are designing for and we make sure everyone is in their mindset. That's why we have personas and research and so many things to keep people focused on who we're doing it for and why we're doing it. And I guess that's the ultimate answer to your question. That is the role of the designer. Uh, as you mentioned, that a great designer can't actually come and just sprinkle some magic and a, a great design uh, will be born. Uh, so for that, I would like to ask you that as a designer, uh, a designer may face uh, challenges to how to come up with new ideas. So personally, what do you feel about that? And how do you actually come up with new ideas as uh, ideas are actually based upon a client and not upon you? Yes, that's a very, that's a really interesting point. And um, sometimes designers, we get so fascinated by the, the research and the interaction with people that we want to research forever. And I'm always reminding service designers and my students, don't forget to design, right? <laughs> We've got to create something. Um, and what's I, what I find interesting about that is you're absolutely right. The key source 
of creativity is the insight you get from interacting with people during your research phase. We're trying to understand what people are really doing. You know, and this came from the early pioneers, IDEO, yet again, when they started bringing in ethnography and realizing that by seeing what people do, you suddenly learn so much. That is the, is the rocket fuel for creativity, actually. Um, the, the, the story I always tell is the story of um, the Helen Hamlin designers, the inclusivity unit inside the Royal College of Art, who were working with London's Heathrow Terminal 5 airport. And they wanted to understand how older people in the future would um, would travel around the airport and how to specify the airport to be suitable for them. And they followed old people around to observe them and saw them all going into the bathroom a lot. And then they went into the bathroom and realized that actually older people were listening to the announcements because they couldn't hear them in the main part of the airport. It was too noisy. So they had to go somewhere quiet and that happened to be the toilet. <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, what you realize is the minute you know that the solution is there, you know, well, we need to create a different type of space, a different place where people can sit and be silent and you can be creative very quickly. So the way we, we develop our creative tools is around connecting to that insight. What have you seen when you walk through the customer journey? What are the pain points? That becomes the thing you need to then sit down and be creative about. And then we love using, you know, the techniques of brainstorming and crazy eights, the Google Sprint method of having eight ideas in eight minutes. It's, it's about creating lots of ideas very early on in the process. Many, many ideas. And people still think creativity is a moment of magic on a misty mountaintop or in the shower. Oh, there it is. Now, sometimes that does work. But I, I'm a big believer in don't just have one idea. If you have one idea, force yourself to have another. Go to the creative gym and keep working that creative muscle, you know, because we need lots of ideas. To find the best idea, we need to generate lots of ideas. And people get confused by that. They think, oh, well, if we have lots of ideas, we have to build them all. No, 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 no. This is where the diamond works again. You have lots of ideas and then you measure those ideas against what you're trying to do, against the insight and the, and the definition of the problem. Which one will solve that problem the best? So creativity and deciding on the best ideas is very closely linked. But I'm a big believer that collaborating together, getting lots of people to have lots of ideas, discussing them, measuring them back to your objective. And then, of course, prototyping. Try them out. Nobody knows if your design is better or worse. Don't argue about it. Prototype it. I keep saying that to my students as well. Prototype can be very easy. A prototype can be a post-it note on a phone. All right. It can say, look, you know, what do you think of this? And you can show it to your chums and you can show it to customers. And they say, that's a terrible idea. Or they say, oh, wow, that's great. Keep going. <laughs> so the whole the whole design process is sort of linked together. But creativity for me is the thing we sometimes forget. <laughs> but that's where the magic happens. And you come up with something that, that reacts to something you've seen. And then you can prototype and iterate until it becomes the perfect piece of design and your creativity can be delivered. I hope that makes sense to uh, to you and your yeah. audience. <laughs> yeah, it absolutely does. Yeah, so I can see that a designer is someone who predicts the future by studying the past. I think that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. <laughs> so on that note, I would like to ask you, how would you actually look at the future of a designer? Yeah, designer does design a future, but what is the future of this design industry and how is it going to evolve in, uh, say, uh, one decade or, uh, or two decades? Gosh, that's a big question to get out my crystal ball and, and understand where it's going. Well, you know, as I said, I think that the overall thing is that design is becoming more successful and people are understanding it. You know, businesses uh, wouldn't dream of developing uh, an application or even a service now without understanding they need to design it uh, in, in a human sense as well as design it in, let's say, a tech technology sense. So I think that sort of cultural change will continue. And as I mentioned before, I think design as an integrated part of, of every company, of every meeting, you know, we should have a designer there. People should, should realize that the tools of a designer will help that meeting go better. They'll capture the ideas. They'll turn them into tangible outcomes that we could go and test 
for every meeting. Imagine that. <laughs> Turn everybody into a creatives. That will be a very powerful thing in the world. And I hope we do see more of that. And perhaps in a way, everyone will feel that they are designers. And I think that's potentially a good thing. I think the other answer to your question is that, um, you know, more specifically, service design keeps keeps growing in what it does and the tools that it has uh, and methods that it has in its in its armory, if you like. So, you know, just in the last few years, we've spent um, some time bringing in economic theories such as jobs to be done. This idea that's very similar to user needs um, research, but delivered from a sort of Harvard Business Review um, Clay Christensen created this idea that if you actually work out what people were trying to do, then your marketing and your product development and everything else will be much more successful. Well, that's clearly our message, but we can we can embrace that business idea and, and help people understand what we do. Um, secondly, uh, areas such as future forecasting and speculative design that have usually been uh, sort of quite futuristic products we are bringing that thinking into service design and using it to help people develop policy. If we look ahead 5, 10, 25 years, it actually allows us to design what we're going to do with our policy, with our strategy from the future perspective. And that's that's proving to be really attractive to businesses and governments who have to make longer term decisions. So we are like magpies in service design. We bring all these technologies in and we try and apply them to the problems we're trying to solve. And I think that will continue. And I'm sure that there will be new um, new areas, you know, areas like behavioural economics, uh, absolutely fundamental to what we're trying to do. We're trying to change behaviour. We're trying to change systems. Uh, and so all these, these tools and areas of design start coming in. So I don't know what we'll call service design in five, 10 years. It might be called something completely different. I don't really care as long as we're all doing it. <laughs> and there's more and more people coming into the tent of design transformation, which I suppose is what it really is. Absolutely do. Uh, you have worked on many more projects and yeah, you had uh, done great in that. So do you have any personal project you, you want to do in the future? Ha, huh. gosh. Um, I was very lucky uh, and during the short period before I joined the Royal College of Art, I was working um, with an organisation called the Policy Lab uh, inside the UK Cabinet Office, which has been one of the few design units inside government anywhere in the world that has survived quite well, six, seven years now. Um, though there have been amazing design labs in, in other, other governments in other countries. Um, and I think the insight I got there, actually being able to use some of the things I'm talking about to help government policy and therefore help enormous numbers of citizens around the world, or sorry, around the country, you know, actually thrive, be more successful, help government really help them. It's not political. It's about just making government work better and helping people interact with all the mechanisms of life which funnily enough was true in the banking industry as well. You know, in banking, you're actually helping people achieve their goals, manage their money. Many of my students work in projects with vulnerable customers to help people do better. Um, th these are the kind of projects that make you think, wow, you know, it, it might even be a small contribution, but we can really have a massive impact on the quality of life. Uh, and I suppose if, if I was to dream of a project, it would be to, to go into that kind of environment and to really help governments um, change their somewhat bureaucratic thinking, help people inside government, inside policymakers' heads to, to really make some, some better decisions that will make everybody more successful. We've seen in COVID immediate reaction to science, and of course it's all been about vaccinations and technology tracing. And as I say, those Sometimes those haven't succeeded. So to be able to dial into that, to be able to take a role in some of those big decisions. I have a friend, Deborah Dorton, who runs the Design Business Association here in the UK, who's fighting hard at the moment for a chief design officer. We have a chief science officer. So why no chief design officer? And of course, most people go, well, what do we want one of those for? They're just going to paint the walls. No, no, no. <laughs> this is fundamental and it's why you failed so often in the past. So that will be the role. I want to be the first chief design officer. 
<laughs> I think there's better candidates. <laughs> That's good. And you said rightly uh, that yeah, a, a designer's small change can actually uh, change the way a human look at at his uh, com- complete life, and it has a massive impact uh, on the user. Absolutely, it can be tiny things that make a massive difference. Um, one of the first, one of the first successful. <laughs> Uh, service design projects in a hospital was a piece of paper where they just wrote, um, does this person have um, a a health visitor? You know, what is, what is this person just being treated for? It was an exit document um, because too many patients were leaving hospital and two days later coming back because nobody knew what had been wrong with them. There was no connection back to the health service. A piece of paper when you left hospital completely solved that and massively reduced the number of people in hospital. Wow. You know, I love that kind of a kind of example. <laughs> yeah. So as we are coming to the end of this podcast, I would like to ask you what message would you like to give to our audience uh, and the listeners? Oh, that's thank you for giving me that opportunity. I think if you're if you're not a designer and you're listening to this, I hope you realize that there is a, a piece of the jigsaw missing in the world. And it's called design. People who actually connect all the fantastic capability of the world together to make sure to facilitate everybody's positive efforts to make sure things really work for people. And there aren't any barriers and they're easy to use and that they are joined up and orchestrated. And that needs design. We all play a role in that design story, actually, even if we're a CEO or somebody, a manager in a company. Think about the human. Don't just be obsessed with your organization. Think about the end result. Designers will help you that. And if you're a designer, take a deep breath. You have a big responsibility, right? We need you to go out there. You will play potentially a huge role in helping the world work better. I really believe that. I think I don't think designers are gods, but they are a missing link and they can help other people be successful. And and together we can really make a massive difference. And that is your role, designer. Your role is not just to satisfy yourself. It's to get a much higher level of satisfaction in helping others really achieve something. And I do fundamentally believe that design has a crucial, if not critical role in helping us achieve the best we can for everybody. So good luck if you're a designer and thank you for listening if you're not. <laughs> thank you so much. It was really a great conversation. I I got to learn a lot from you and hopefully my uh, audience also had uh, to great takeaways from this conversation. Thank you for coming on our show. Thank you, Park, for your persistence. It's been a real delight and a privilege to talk to you and uh, and your audience. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Congrats to all of you who made it till the end. I really hope you liked our show. If you did, please leave us a review on YouTube comment box. And by the way, if you had any question which came up because of the content we covered with our guest, go on YouTube, go on Instagram and you can leave us a comment. We will surely get back to you and help you as much as possible. Arttown.store, that's the website name and our Instagram ID too. Find us and talk to us. We are waiting to converse with you.